step one is opening your heart. And, and I think part of that means uh, letting go of, of your insecurities, letting go of the, the walls you put up between people. And, and then you can start uh, really kind of accessing you know, your full potential. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. We are rushing to the online world like it's the next gold rush. It just might be, too. As a practitioner who knows a little bit about media, I've got some suggestions for you. And regardless of whether you're doing tele-whatever sessions, more about that in a moment, or an online class, there's a few tips that will easily help you to come across as more professional and more respectful. I want to share this with you today because I'm a sound guy, and especially as my hearing has diminished over the years, I really know the vital importance of sound and audio. And most audio on the internet, it's crap. And if you're used to it, you might really not notice how annoying it is because you're used to it. All you notice is that you don't want to spend time online and what you end up saying to yourself is, I don't like looking at the computer or I don't want to be in front of the computer for an online class. I don't think this is true. I think it's more that you don't like listening to the computer, especially if you're going to be seeing patients online. Get yourself a decent headset mic or even a quality USB microphone that you can plug into your computer. Well, at least if you can find one, because at the moment, those are mostly sold out. And for good reason. And the reason is because they make you sound great. At the very, very least, when you're talking to people on the internet, whether you're in a class or you're doing an online consultation, at the very minimum, use a set of earbuds with a microphone, you know, like, like you'd have on a cell phone. How bad is that microphone in your computer? The microphone in your computer, it sounds like this. Why does it sound so bad? Here's the reason. The microphone in your computer is a condenser microphone. Condenser microphones actually are pretty cool because they can pick up a lot of sound. And, and actually, if you were doing like really good, high-quality audio recording, you would use a condenser mic, but you would use it in a sound-treated room. However, most people are not working in a sound-treated room. You're working wherever you happen to be. There's the hum of the refrigerator in the next room. Maybe there's rain falling on the windows just outside. Every room also has some ambient noise. That condenser microphone in your computer is built to pick up all the sound. And so it sounds really tinny. It sounds really thin. It's got, if you listen closely, it's almost like there's a crackle or kind of a sound in there. And this is partly why it can be very fatiguing to listen to people that are talking into a computer and its condenser microphone. So at the very least, use a set of earbuds. Or if you want to take a step up, this is a $40 headset microphone. It's made by Sennhauser. It's the Sennhauser PC8. Pericardium A is the way I like to think about it. And this is a headset, and it's got a microphone. Now, the microphone on this is also a condenser mic, but it's a higher quality microphone than what you had in your computer. And in addition, it has some noise cancellation, so it's less likely to pick up all that room noise that you're for sure going to get on the condenser microphone that's inside of your computer. There are a number of quite good USB microphones that you can buy these days. The ATR2100 and the Samsung Q2U. 
Both of these are really fine microphones. They'll make you sound great. These days, they're probably 80 to 100 bucks. They used to be a lot cheaper, but given the gold rush to the internet, they've gotten a bit more expensive. These are diaphragm microphones, and if at all possible, you want to get yourself a USB microphone that's a diaphragm microphone, because the diaphragm mics are very good at picking up voice, but they're not so good at picking up the room noise, and so you'll actually sound like a million bucks with one of these microphones. One of the things to watch out for is there are also condenser microphones like the Blue Yeti line that are also USB. Again, condenser microphones, if used well and tuned right, can sound pretty good. But if you don't know what you're doing with audio, then stick with those diaphragm microphones. And now I'm back to my podcast professional ElectroVoice RE320. It's my usual microphone that I do these shows with. And it's probably a bit of overkill for the kind of stuff that you want to do, but I think you've just gotten a pretty good idea about how those different microphones will sound. You know, good sound is about showing respect for the person that is listening to you. And here's the thing. Most people using the internet, they don't care. And so if you upgrade your sound quality, people will find it easier to listen to you. And they'll like you better online. You know, it's actually a bit subliminal. They're not going to know why they like listening to you. They're just going to know that it's easier to listen. But that's very much at the subconscious level. They're just going to be happy to be connecting with you. And it's going to make communication a lot easier. And they'll be able to listen to you for a much longer time. All right. That's the audio. I want to talk a little bit about video. First of all, remember, the internet is forever. If you are looking to do some telemedicine thing, please make sure that the video that you are showing people is professional. You want a clean background, ideally just a blank wall or maybe just a picture hanging, and no backlighting. I've seen lots of people online lately, and they've got their back to a set of open windows. And so what happens is the video camera is picking up all that light. It's putting you in darkness. People can't really see you. It looks terrible. So one of the things to do is make sure that any windows that are behind you, make sure those blinds are closed. And then additionally, bring some light to the front. You can just bring in some cheap uh, floor lamps. Those work really well. The other thing is, when you're doing something online with your patients, be sure to wear your work clothes, right? You want to project a professional image, and it also reminds you that you're at work now. You're not just lounging around in your pajamas. Now, for online classes, and, and I think all of you have been looking at online classes lately, please, if you're going to turn your camera on, then attend to a couple of basics here. It's, I think it's just good manners, all right? Number one, pay attention to your camera angle. We don't want to be looking up your nose at your nose hair. And secondly, and I just mentioned this a moment ago, don't have a light behind you because you're going to be in darkness. People are going to be seeing light. And it, it's just quite annoying. We want to see you, not your outline. Furthermore, if you're going to be attending a class, don't slouch and don't be sprawled out all over your couch. What you're broadcasting to the world is that you're lazy and you don't really care. And here's the other thing, friends. You're being recorded forever. And you don't know where that video is going to go and you don't know who's going to see it. So, if you're going to join a class with video, please show us that you're being attentive. Again, that good lighting, 
We want to see your interest. We want to see your attention. We want to see your spirit. Really, the idea of being able to see each other these days in these online classes is so that we can be connective. So please make it look like you actually want to connect with us. All of us right now really need some connection. So don't look like some troll under a dark bridge. Show the presenter and show your classmates that you got some respect. And also, if you're the presenter, remember, respect your audience. Consider the background. You know, you might be a scholar physician, but we really don't need to see that cluster that's your library. It's distracting, and it takes away from the ability to concentrate on you. And again, I'm going to say this, and I'll probably say it a few more times because it's so easy and it's so important. Lighting, friends. We want some light that's in front of you. We want to see your face. We want to see you illuminated. Even a cheap floor lamp or two can make a world of difference. And if you want to get a little bit fancier, there are some little uh, LED panels, and they have different kinds of temperatures of light on them, so you can dial in the light that actually looks best with your skin tone. Just because you've got cheap tech built into your computer doesn't mean you should use it. Damn, I feel like I'm channeling my father right now which actually isn't a bad thing. My dad's a good guy, and he's a snappy dresser, too. As to the telemedicine, telehealth, whatever it is, I know we're all being called to get online and do our thing. I get it. Our income has fallen off a cliff. Mine has, too. And I have a few thoughts that are, well, they're probably counter to most of what you've been hearing. But this is what's on my mind. First, this tele-whatever-it-is it's a lousy name. It's like social distancing is a lousy name. We are physically distancing, and we are actually looking more deeply for social connection because we're social creatures. Even us introverts are social creatures, and especially in a time like this where there's so much isolation, a sense of being connected is part of what gets us through all this. Now, this just might be my own annoying bugaboo. But that term, tele, blah, 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 whatever you want to put in back of it, it just seems wrong to me. I get it. That's what people are calling it because that's what they've been calling it for I don't know how long. But it really doesn't describe what we do. We really need another term for what we're trying to do in blending our medicine with the online interface. And I actually don't know what that term is. I've been chewing on it but I've not come up with anything. And so I'm throwing it out to all of you. We need a better name for this. We need to see if together we can rename this in a way that gets people's attention. And more importantly, it's descriptive of what we're actually doing. Secondly, when I was a kid, dogs ran loose in the neighborhood. Yeah, that was a while ago. And there was always this one dog that would chase cars. And the running joke in the neighborhood was, yeah, what's that dog going to do when they catch the car? Well, I feel like this tele-thing that we're being asked to gold rush to, it's similar. What are you going to do when you get online? I know that a lot of what we do is in-person and it's hands-on. So the big question in my mind is, how do we translate that into an online encounter? I'm not looking to throw cold water in the gold rush here. But I'm asking all of us to consider what is something of the essence of our work that can be brought to the online encounter. And what I want to emphasize is you and your individual work. 
what you've been doing already. Because if you think you're going to pivot into becoming the new meditation teacher for your patients, I think it might be helpful to realize that there's a lot of people on the internet that have already been doing this for years and they're really good at it and they got that platform dialed in. Likewise, there are people who already have established platforms for nutritional counseling. They might even be better able to serve your patients than you in that particular respect. Again, they know the online world. They know the platform. I think we need to be realistic here. I am all for being online and lucky for me, I'm an herbalist and that translates quite easily to the digital world. But the other work that I do, the work that's really near to my heart, the acupuncture, the way I listen for resources in my patients that they're not aware of, the way sensing hands can dramatically shift a person's chi and allow them to settle into themselves. Doing that on the internet? I don't know about you. I know that I've not got it figured out. Maybe I will, and then I can offer it. So yes, do consider the digital world, but make sure it aligns with something in you that's already a part of the work that you do. Otherwise, it will be difficult to show up for that work with a feeling of authenticity. And that's something our patients have come to expect from us. Yeah, challenging times here, friends. Do the work. Speaking of work, in a moment, we're going to get into a conversation with Lama Camel on practice, business, and authenticity. We recorded this conversation before the COVID crisis came to town. And this conversation is every bit as relevant now as it was when we recorded it. A couple of things, because if you're moving to the digital world and you're not sure about how to dial in your tech, I can help. I'm offering consulting with getting yourself set up so that you can give the people you're trying to help a quality online experience with you. Reach out to me on the website and send an email for more details or to schedule some time. Our friends at The Lantern have just released a special complimentary electronic edition of their fine publication that is dedicated to helping us understand the current pandemic we're facing. Chinese medicine has faced epidemics in the past. Many of us pride ourselves on how our medicine has helped over the centuries. But just because doctors of the past successfully treated epidemic disease, that doesn't mean that we know how to treat it. It's not so much about choosing the right formula, although that is an important aspect of treatment. With something as complex as COVID-19, we need to understand the disease process. And if we're going to use Chinese medicine successfully, then we need to be able to think clearly about Chinese medicine and how it works. This special edition of The Lantern will give you some helpful insight into how doctors of both the past and the present are thinking about and treating epidemic disease. Get your free electronic copy of The Lantern by visiting www.thelantern.com.au. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs? is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. 
do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one -on -one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. All right, friends. Let's get into today's conversation on bringing our authentic self to the endeavor of business and practice. Lamia Camel, welcome to Geological. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to say one thing really quickly. We were talking just before I started rolling tape, and you had this great phrase that you used. You said, abundance is no joke. <laughs> it's for real. <laughs> it's for real. I want to begin with that. Abundance is no joke. How did you come to that? And what does that mean for you? 
Yeah, I think life brought me to that. I think that you choose to to have abundance or you choose to have less, right? And I think that when you open your heart, abundance comes. The context of this conversation was you were asking me about, you know, all the things that are going on in my life right now. And there's a lot going on. And I think it's because I finally sort of succumbed to what is supposed to happen, right? I, I think I'm moving closer and closer to that Ming and being comfortable with the fact that that abundance is is probably where I'm supposed to be. And I'm supposed to just ride that wave and not be upset about it and and not get anxious about it and, and, and just to be thankful for it. How could you get upset about abundance? I mean, isn't that, I mean, doesn't everybody, I would think everybody's like, man, I like me some abundance. You think so, right? People always want more responsibility and then they get it and they're stressed. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm not sure people want more responsibility. <laughs> I don't know. I run into that a lot. Uh, I want to be more, take more leadership role, that kind of thing. And, and then I talk to them sort of about the logistics of that and things shift a little bit, right? You know, I want to see more patients. I want to, I want my business to be bigger, but there, there are so many layers to that and, and they're great, but you just have to be, your heart has to be open to it and, and your mind has to be open to it too. Can you tell me something about the layers that you see involved in that? I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, let's open our heart to it. I mean, that sounds nice and it sounds like it wouldn't be that difficult, but I mean, a lot of people struggle with their businesses and a lot of people struggle with creating the life they want to create. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, opening your heart is step one, right? <laughs> that's not the end of it. It's the beginning, right? The, the emperor has to be open to the idea or else nothing will get passed, right? Um, I think it's that same concept, but you still need all of that infrastructure, right? You still need the generals. You still need all the pieces to make it happen. Um, so step one is opening your heart. And, and I think part of that means uh, letting go of, of your insecurities, letting go of the, the walls you put up between people. And, and then you can start uh, really kind of accessing, you know, your full potential. Letting go of insecurities. Oh my goodness. I have noticed over the years, nobody argues harder for my insecurities than me. For sure. That's what's supposed to happen. <laughs> we have to be our biggest uh, enemy and our biggest uh, supporter, right? Um, apparently it seems to be the case. Yeah, that's what I found with myself too, for sure. Yeah. So what have you learned about letting go of insecurities? I think part of it is really just finding a community that supports you, right? When you're feeling down, you have those people around you who give you genuine feedback, who support you in, in a way that, that is loving, but really also, you know, they don't BS you, right? They don't fill you and fluff you up with, with garbage, right? It's okay to, I think, having other people tell you about the your opportunities. I love that. It's such a business word, right? Opportunities. But I've kind of held on to it because I think there's so much power in words. And when we say things like faults, you you go back down this sort of like shame spiral. So staying away from that is, is really significant. I love having people who, who point out my opportunities. Like, Lamy, I really wish you would have said it this way. I think it would have made a deep impact. That's great. And usually I'm the one who's catching that. But sometimes when you're feeling low, you need somebody else to kind of point that out for you. Absolutely. Or just our blind spots. I mean, we all have blind spots. For sure. For sure. And, and having somebody who's trustworthy, because that can be tender territory. You know, again, our insecurities are there. Our self-image might be tied up in certain things. It's, uh, it's tender territory. And so often these opportunities look more like problems or deficiencies. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think 
the more prominence you get, the more you get closer to sort of your destiny, the easier it is to kind of hit yourself in the head and, and dive deeper, right? The higher you get, the, the further it is to fall or whatever, right? Absolutely. I'm very lucky for so many reasons, but one is that I have a community around me who who uh, really calls me on my on my BS for sure. And I remember I remember in college when you know you're at that kind of developmental stage where you really you get to choose your friends. Um, it's not uh, yes. like you get stuck with them. Uh, remember those days? I went to a small private school in high school, so I didn't really get to choose my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and in college, you get to. And I remember thinking the people that I knew that I loved and that loved me would call me on on my BS. You know, uh, would say like, "Oh, what are you thinking? Like, you can't say that." Or, "What were you thinking when you did that?" Like, oh yeah, huh, that's right. Okay, that's legit. It started at that age and, you know, I'm thankful we have a very open family in my household. My mom is very honest. My sister is brutally honest and my wife is so honest as well. And and that just makes such a difference, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've got relationships with integrity, the whole thing's a lot easier. Oh yeah, for sure. My boss is the same way too. We say it straight, you know, if I get a short text, I call her, I'm like, what's going on? Like, because I know you're not angry at me, or you tell me. So, what else is happening, right? And there's something really beautiful about that. It's it's so uh, it's so freeing. It is. When, you know, when we have the opportunity to show up with our entire self, all the fragged, raggly, fuzzy, unformed pieces as well, then there truly is an opportunity. I suspect because I mean, all that stuff that you feel like doesn't fit, at least in my experience. Sometimes it's just material that needs to mature a bit. It needs it needs a place to grow. It needs some support, but it also needs a certain kind of challenge. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think our patients give us some of that too, right? Especially, I always think about the patients I've been seeing for years. I have uh, a couple who uh, literally my first semester of internship were patients that are still patients this day. Of course, very different cadence, right? But it's those people who clearly trusted you and you're pretty rough, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and they've seen you evolve and they've seen you grow and they've seen you um, continually challenge themselves. And, and, and because of that, I think they put their trust in you. Taking care of patients actually is probably the biggest emotional supporter you could possibly have. It's so challenging. The human body is the most sophisticated system that exists, to my knowledge. To have somebody actually give their self to you and and trust you with their health is, is such a big deal. And it's such a, I don't want to say ego boost, right? But a confidence boost, maybe. Yes, I, I would agree that it's a confidence boost. And it seems to me too, I mean, when I go in with a patient, I can have whatever crazy stuff is going on in my life, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we all have it's families <laughs> and it's life. Yeah. But when I go into that clinic, I don't get to take that with me. I mean, in a way I take it, right? Because it's me. But at the same time, that's not the place to act that out. That's the place to just like learn to take things that are going on and gently set them to the side. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like I have this conversation a lot, Um, not so much with my team actually, but maybe with some of the other teams, because I think there's an inherent aspect of that in how we practice. I don't even have to think about letting that stuff go um, because it just, it goes. I'm not there for me anymore. I'm purely a conduit of what they need. It's not even like I'm grounding myself before I walk in. Now, I will tell you, um, I have a 10 and a half month old. My wife birthed him. And so she had a full maternity leave, but I had a pretty short couple week maternity leave. And those 
couple of weeks coming back were rough. And I think that it was clear that it's just a sleep issue, right? When I'm not nurturing myself, it's much harder to, to actually come in there and not have to forcefully ground myself. You know, um, it comes so naturally, but that's, I think it's assuming that you're taking good care of yourself. Right. So when I see that somebody on my team, because they're all so incredible, but when I see somebody on my team who's kind of floundering like that, it tells me that clearly they're not taking care of themselves and I need to find out how to help them. That's not who they are inherently. I mean, now different professions are different, right? But uh, in our profession, it's, it's, it's just part of it, which is so cool. We don't have to think about it. I have so many therapist patients where I have to teach them grounding exercises and how to be thoughtful about that and protecting themselves and I don't even think we have to think about it at a certain point, you know? Really? Ther like psychotherapist patients? Yeah. Who have yeah. trouble doing this? Yeah. I'm like, well, no no kidding. You're here every week. <laughs> that sounds so surprising to me. I would think that people trained in that particular discipline would have had a lot of experience with that. I think they have experience, but there's a difference between experience and it just being like muscle memory. Uh, I play basketball. So there was a point where when I was still kind of developing my skills where it just felt like I was a slog, right? And then you get to a point where it's just, I don't even think about it. So I won't pick up a basketball for months and I'll pick one up and it's like nothing's changed. Jumping back on a bicycle. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so it's not so much, you know, it's it, it's kind of the, the conversation of is it experience, is it quantity or quality, right? Mm -hmm. I think they do teach them a lot of things, but I don't think it's the same high quality that we we learn, right? That's inherent in our medicine. And so it's much easier for us to pick it up quickly than I think it is for, for maybe other modalities. But I'm hoping that's changing because this very simple stuff. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind, and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Well, it seems simple to us. I know for myself, if I had to sit and simply talk to somebody for an hour about the psychological world, I would probably lose my mind. <laughs> I'm 100% on board with I, you. I mean, I just, it's just too damn convoluted and sticky and just, you know, I truly appreciate people that are good therapists. Well, it's just too much in the head, I think, you know, like we're losing the physical part of our humanity, right? It's not, we, they're more, more than our heads, thank God, right? We use more than our heads. <laughs> and in our treatments, we can use more than our heads. And so we can very much attend to somebody's spirit or psych, you know, psychoemotive aspect, 
through the body and just leave them quietly to sort it out themselves. Yeah, absolutely. One of my students this semester was talking about how she spends about an hour and a half, two hours with her patients, uh, kind of uh, without any interruption. And I told her, I'm like, how do you do that? And I'm a talker. There's no question. We talk and I'll go over for sure. I am not an efficient clinician in that way. (laughs) There's no question about it. But you better believe that I would lose my mind if we just talk for that long. There comes a point where it's like, okay, put your ego aside and let's get to work here. And, you know, some patients don't like that and they just want to be indulged in that way. And that's fine. And there are other people who can do that. And because there are people who are passionate about doing that, that's great. I find for myself, if I have a tight schedule, generally speaking, I do better work. I'm focused. I'm concise. I do my best to listen and, and, and have people be able to say whatever they need to say. If I've got an open-ended time and I can kind of run over, it's no big deal, I get sloppy. I just get sloppy, but if, but if I have to be tight, man, I think I'm a better clinician and I do better work for people. I swear I tap into not to the heavens much better when, <laughs> when I'm busy. There's no question about it. And it's interesting. Part of my role is, um, you know, coaching and training my team. And so I very frequently I'll have somebody shadowing me. And because I'm only in the clinic one day a week now, the rest of my time is really spent throughout uh, the rest of the work that I do with the company. It tends to be a busy day, right? But every once in a while, I mean, I live in Chicago, right? So the weather sucks or I don't know, the Cubs won a game or something. And and so people are canceling or rescheduling and I have a slower day and I I kind of lose my mind a little bit. Like I'm not, I'm not clear thinking. I, I kind of fumble on my words. You know, it's really interesting. But usually, when I'm seeing, you know, 15 to 20 patients in a short amount of time with somebody shadowing me, right? I am just on point because I have to explain things to you. I have to, you know, keep you on on point with my patients and, and keep the time going because they're also probably seeing somebody else in the clinic, right? So it's not just we're not just on my schedule. We have to work as a team. So you know, I can't be like, oh, I'll just take them in 20 minutes late because that's going to affect their next appointment. Right. So having that accountability is really important. And I think that's just a big piece of our, our medicine and what's missing in general is that accountability. Tell me more about that accountability piece. How do you think we're missing accountability? Most of us practice on our own, right? And so we don't have to, nobody's questioning what we're doing, right? Our patients don't know the medicine. If we tell them they're liver yin deficient, they don't know if they're actually liver blood deficient, right? (laughs) They don't know. They've got no context. They've got no idea what we're talking about. I don't even like using those phrases in the clinic. I, I have really stepped away from talking Chinese medicine to my patients because... It's just not, I I might as well speak Chinese. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say I might as well speak Arabic because I speak that better than I do Chinese. (laughs) Some of my patients would react to that, but, you know, for the most part, they wouldn't. Um, Yeah, no, I don't use those terms either. You have to speak people's language, right? It's, I think I learned that very quickly. My parents are immigrants and so I have a very keen understanding of sort of the power of language and that's actually kind of why I never really delve really deeply into uh, translation or anything like that, because I think that there's always going to be pieces missing and, and that's just part of it, right? And we have to be okay with the unknowing, right? That's, it's almost like quantum mechanics in that sense. Getting back to accountability, most people are on their own, right? So they don't have somebody checking their notes. They don't have somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of. And I think many of them feel like they have to be on their own. Like it's me against the world and I'm taking on this, you know, everything. And um, I represent this medicine, but 
we're, we're societies, right? We need to, we need to be accountable to others. And you see this even in things like note-taking, right? Um, you see kind of, if you ever go to, go to your best friend, like the people, person you love the most from school, go look at their charts. <laughs> Likely it's going to be appalling. And truthfully for a long time, that's how I rolled too. Right. And even my wife and I, we, we walked out of school three weeks later, we had our practice open. We went to school together. My charts were appalling. It was embarrassing when I look back at that. Right. Um, because I didn't have accountability even to her and we worked together, but we didn't really share many patients. We kind of had our own thing. Uh, not having that, it means that you're not on your game. It's not means you're not on your toes constantly. And I think that's important. How else do we grow if there isn't that stimulus, right? There has to be a little fire, right? We poke the skin for a reason. We have to get a little bit of a prick in there to get things moving. That's a real problem that, you know, if we're not building communities, we, we tend to, we don't have accountability. And that means that we're not growing as much as we should be, right? Um, and I feel good about the fact that that is shifting. I think more and more people, you know, using like Facebook communities and stuff like that. I think there's potential, I would say. I wouldn't say it's actually actuated potential, but certainly the potential to have more communities and create more accountability. You're seeing less people go on Facebook and being like, hey, my person has, uh, my patient has migraines. What should I do? Right. And more, you know, here's the pattern that I'm seeing. What are your thoughts? Right. I think that, uh, that we still have a long way to go. And, and what's so fun about working in a larger team like mine is that um, we are accountable to each other, right? If somebody goes on vacation, we're paying for their vacation or paid time off, right? Um, and then somebody's going to come and see their patients. You need to be able to know what they are doing, right? There's nothing worse than your patient coming in and being like, whatever you did two weeks ago changed my life. Can we do that again? Well, probably it's not going to work, but it would be really great if I had documented what I did two weeks ago, right? right. Every now and then I recognize... I forgot to write something down, something really critical, like like you were just saying, because um, you get that feedback, this was really great, or that was really terrible. And you go, all right, what did I do? Oh, shit, I forgot to write it down. Yeah, you know, totally. it seems so clear in the moment. When it's just me writing my notes, sometimes I'll just write in code, too, because it's just faster, and you know, and it's just for me. And then every now and then I think, oh my goodness, you know, if this was looked at in a court of law, I wonder how that would look. That's something to consider. But beyond that, I want to come back to the community piece because our work, even though we work with people, it's inherently isolating. Right? We're just like working one-on-one. -on -one. We're working deep, but we don't have that community support that you're talking about, which I want to get into here in a moment too with your with your work situation. But back to the community piece, we we don't really have that. And, and a friend of mine that I talk with on a fairly regular basis, her thoughts are that we have communities like psychotherapists that we were talking about earlier. They have consultation groups. Their work is similar to ours in that it's inherently isolating even though they're working deeply with people. And so they have these consultation groups so they can kind of work their own stuff out so they can have the support of people to you know, help keep them on the straight and narrow, so to speak, if they're going off the rails and they don't realize it. But we don't have that in the Chinese medicine community. I mean, you're saying there's Facebook and all that, but I don't know. I've, I've, I've kind of had to give up on Facebook because it's, it's, it seems, for me, it's too random. And I'm easily distractible. And so a thing like Facebook is bad news for me because I can't, pull my concentration into any one thing. Now, if I go to some sort of discussion group that's not on Facebook, I can be cogent and I can be thoughtful, but Facebook is like built to take whatever scattered thought I have and amplify that. 
So it's super unhelpful for someone like me. There might be people that that community works for, and that's great. I don't think I ever fully bought into Facebook, candidly. I'm not saying it's not great for our company, but I'm so thankful that I have other people who are very passionate about doing that that do it. Um, <laughs> it's such a sinkhole for me. I, I'm 100% the same way. I just, all of a sudden, an hour's gone. I'm like, I'm not even sure what I just did, actually. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a little spooky. Yeah, it is kind of spooky. It's like a virus in my head. Um, but, you know, I, I think that it, you can create genuine community there. It's just not the way I can, right? It's like some people like to read books on um, and physical books and some people like to read them on computers or phones, right? Everybody has their preference. But I think that the thing with accountability, it takes effort, right? It's so much easier to say, I have a migraine patient, what should I do? It's so much harder to actually like Make yourself vulnerable and put out there, this is a diagnosis that I have. And if you do that, you have the chance of people laughing at you and being like, what are you thinking? How did you miss this in the pulse? You have to have a safe space to do it. We have a meeting every month for my team, and I always try to end it with difficult cases. And what we do is we bring in, I ask them to do a full case, right? Don't just say, oh, I have a tough, you have to bring in pulses, you have to bring in tongue, you have to bring diagnostics, maybe even a couple, some data from your previous visits, right? So it's kind of um, like an advanced math class, show your work. Yeah, I am, I am a mathematician at heart, right? So that's my background for sure. So absolutely, show your work, that's non-negotiable. So yeah, show, show me what you did and, and where you came to and, and how you're stuck, right? And then know that you're in this community of people who who also gets stuck, but who might think of things slightly differently and can help kind of move you forward. Um, but it takes effort. I mean, they have to come to the meetings. Right? Um, if you're on your own, you don't have to, right? Like, oh, life gets busy. I always cancel appointments to make sure I'm at these meetings. And many other people do. And I ask them to, and I feel bad, but um, we need to create, have that community. We need to keep that going because that's where you you can continue to kind of feel good about yourself and in, in, in a supportive environment, right? So um, not uncommon that we come out of it with, you know, depending on the size of the team at that time and how many people are there, but, you know, 20 some people's opinions on things and you walk into the clinic and you're like, oh, I have this brilliant idea that was really sussed out by, it's like a master class. It's almost like being in my doctoral uh, program again. And I think we're going to move this way. And in fact, you know, things happen. It's crazy. You know, you, you said it, right? You get in this wormhole. You're so focused when you're with your patients that sometimes you miss things, right? And this is, again, that comes back to that, you know, accountability of people calling you on your opportunities, right? Like, did you, did you ask them about if they're on birth control? Because that could impact the cysts. Oh, you know what? Somehow I completely missed yeah, that. Yeah, totally like, missed that. Yeah. Thank you. You're not a horrible human being by the way. Right. Well, you know, this is, so we talk about community and we usually talk about like, oh, community, you know, kumbaya. But here's the downside of community. And we see this in our profession. I suspect other professions are like this as well. The downside of community is, oh, those idiots over there, right? Oh, I have this patient and they've been to see all these, you know, different doctors, blah, blah, blah. And those idiots, you know, did blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, I think we do it to each other as well. You know, I think we do it to each other more than we do it to others. We might, yeah. So, I, you know, I just want to throw that out there. I heard a joke. Um, we ran into each other briefly at uh, the Pacific Symposium, and I heard a great acupuncturist joke when I was there. You ready for this? I love cheesy right. jokes. Bring it. <laughs> How many acupuncturists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Uh, 17. It takes nine. <laughs> One to screw it in, eight to cross their arms, shake their head and go, I wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> 
totally. Well, and that's, and that's part of how I try to transform these conversations in our meetings too, right? Is it's not about, well, why did you do it this way? Be like, okay, that's interesting. This is kind of what came up in my head, right? And when you do that, inherently there has to be this comfort that you're not competing. And I think that that's such an important piece. You know, I remember when I met the owners of the, of the company uh, of Align Modern Health where I work, they actually approached me because I was working at PCOM and Career Services here in Chicago. They were saying, you know, we want to hire some acupuncturists. It's like, that's great. That's my job is to help acupuncturists get jobs. Finally, come on over. Let's talk. Sure. I'll meet you Perfect. at eight in the morning on Friday. <laughs> I wasn't psyched about it, but whatever. We made it work. And um, they said, you know, just, just want to let you know, uh, we're actually opening a clinic right across the street from your clinic. I'm like, oh, that's great. And they're like, well, you're not upset about it. Like, Why would I be upset about it? One, like if you go two blocks one way, there's an acupuncture clinic. If you go two blocks the other way, pretty much any direction, two blocks away, you'd find an acupuncture clinic. Um, two, you don't have an acupuncturist there, so you're not competing with me. And three, you don't have me, so you're not competing with me, right? <laughs> so like, let's be real. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, all right. Um, and the reality is that like you only compete with yourself. There's there's no shortage of patients. And this is where I'm so, so, oh my so God. thankful. It's so true, isn't it? It's like, who's my competition? Oh, I'm my competition. Right. I'm we're my the ones own who get in our ways. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Coming back to what we were talking about initially. I've been so blessed to see so many incredible uh, scholars in this medicine speak. The most successful people in our business do not worry about competition. They just don't. They worry about how they can better themselves. And I think that's inherent in our medicine anyway, right? Isn't that Yangshen kind of? I right? would I would put that in the Yangshen bucket. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that comes in everything that we do. That comes in the way we talk about patients who've seen other clinicians. How many of us have seen patients that have been other places? I always ask them, oh, great, you've seen an acupuncturist. Was it an acupuncturist or was it a physical therapist or was it a chiropractor? Not because then I get to trash whatever, right? Like, okay, I just need to contextualize what your experience was like so I can clarify sort of how this might be different. My wife is an acupuncturist. We went to pretty much all the same classes. Right? We lived together. Um, we studied together. She did better than me most of the time. Even seeing her is going to be different because if you saw her two weeks ago, you were a different person then. It's just it. So, you know, to me, it's it's contextualizing, but it's a super easy opportunity where I think a lot of us do this, and it's so unfortunate is that it's an opportunity to trash people. It moves you nowhere. I would not say it moves you nowhere. I would say it moves you backwards. Backwards. Yeah, that's fair. I would I would actually say it moves you backwards. This is something, it took me a long time to get it out of my system, where people would come in and they talk about other experiences they had with other doctors. And I would, I would use it to kind of go, well, yeah, you know, they blah, 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 whatever. And it never, ever helps. And it took a lot of energy away from me. And I found over time, if I could simply take it as information. Oh, that was your experience. And just leave it at that. Just leave it as, oh, that's your experience. Okay. And then move forward without making some kind of comment. I think I had better relationships with my patients, but more than that, I was not so tired at the end of the day. It's true. It's exhausting it talking mess. a difference on my own energy <laughs> level. Absolutely. Talking smack does not help your energy. No, it's only when you're playing basketball, I will say. There's one exception. Because <laughs> if you're getting in their head, then you're you're saving a little bit of energy, right? But okay, otherwise, there you go. Right. 
otherwise this isn't a competition. It just doesn't make sense. You know, I remember I saw Deborah Betts speak a couple of years ago at uh, Integrative Fertility Symposium, and I'm just in love with her and her work. And it's, um, she's just like so many of my mentors. And she said it, she's like, look, there's no shortage of patients. And when I hear people say they can't, they're not busy, it's very confusing to me, especially in a place like Chicago, right? There's a million, you know, there's over a thousand acupuncturists, but how many millions of people are there here who need us? And how many millions of people are coming to the city because of all of the other, you know, high level healthcare that exists here? They need our help. There are so many doctors who know that they have their limitations, much like we have our limitations, right? So I just, I don't get that. I don't get the competition. I interview folks for my job, you know, to bring them onto the team. And some people just aren't a fit. Now I could talk mess about them and say like, what were they thinking? You know, how would that possibly work? Or I could say, you know what? It just doesn't feel like what you bring to the equation right now is what we need, right? And I'm happy to give you tangible examples of how I feel like I would love to see you grow to fit our model, but you get to do whatever you want to do, girl. (laughs) <laughs> you want to swap points and do your thing. It's not, I don't, I'm not your boss, but if you come work with us, we do have some, you know, some kind of baseline things that I want you to feel comfortable with. Differential diagnosis, herbal comfort, confidence, that kind of thing. Yeah. This, this piece about being able to not go down the dark side, so to speak. Yeah. It's hard. It's really, it's so easy. It's so much easier to talk mess about people. It's so much easier to like, become a community around uh, being negative towards something, right? Well, or to ourselves. I mean, the thing that you just said, which I think a lot of people starting out might go, wait a minute, what did she just say? She's in Chicago. There's a thousand acupuncturists. There's a couple down that block. There's a couple down this other block. Someone's opening up across the street. And she says, there's plenty for everybody. That's a little bit unusual from the narrative that I think a lot of people have in their heads, where if there's more people that are doing this, it's going to be less people coming to see me. Yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's sort of the same idea that um, I think I, I have a lot of theories of where this comes from. I'm happy to talk about it. It's sort of like people, you know, they want to just keep treating people and yeah, you need to come in twice a week or three times a week and you need to just come in forever. Or is it better for your patient that you get them better or move them past sort of this stage and empower them to feel better and be able to handle some of the stuff on their own? And then you maybe don't have as many patient visits. I would say that's the case, right? I don't need to see somebody. If I, if somebody needs to come in twice or three times a week for years, I start to question what I'm doing, right? And like, is there, should I be empowering them more? I'm not saying people aren't complicated and there aren't complicated cases, of course, right? Um, And, you know, my chronic patients, they do come in regularly and I know that I'm giving them something. Um, And I always check in with myself about that because if I'm not, you know, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. Um, So you fire patients from time to time? It's not so much fire. I think that's because I think people are lifelong patients, right? Um, But it's a matter of, you know what, let's take a break. You know, like, I think you're doing awesome. Let's, let's pause for a few and see how you're feeling. And look, if things come back, come in and see me, please. Right. Um, You know exactly how to reach me, but take a break. But I'll tell you the people who get better faster and who are empowered are the ones who are the best ambassadors for our medicine. Right. And that's where I think we have no shortage of patients. The coolest experience this past Thursday, I had a patient come in who I hadn't seen. I was, I was like, God, oh, that name sounds familiar. And I looked through the, our charts and I'd seen him 
twice in 2015, which, you know, those aren't great metrics, seeing somebody twice, right? Um, and I look kind of back and I realized that I had been treating his wife and um, they were trying to get pregnant. And he came in to our clinic maybe over the summer, again, this summer, because uh, he was having some headaches and he was seeing one of our chiropractors and they're making moves, but it wasn't, you know, as consistent. And so the chiropractor was like, look, at this point, I want you to see the acupuncturist. Um, we have Dr. Camel here at this clinic. And he's like, well, it's the only person I'll see. I've seen her previously. So anyway, so he comes in. I very peripherally remembered him, right? Truthfully, it's been a couple of years. I feel bad. No, sometimes it will, but it's hard. It's been four years, right? Four years. You saw him twice. Yeah, right. Yeah, totally. But yeah. you know, I saw his face, and I have all of these memories. Right? It's that's just how my memory works. Or I feel his pulse. I'm like, oh, I know exactly what's. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Anyway, so he comes in. He's like, you know, my wife and I think about you daily. You know, it's because of you that we have these two beautiful children, and uh, we wouldn't be who we are today without you. And I'm like, man, I saw this guy twice. <laughs> what about the people I see weekly? You know, do they think that? And it just it just kind of reminded me of just how um, how powerful our words are, and how powerful uh, what we do is, and, and how you don't have to. People don't have to be dependent on you to be successful, and you don't have to be successful by making people dependent on you. Right? I tend to think I'm less successful if my patients are dependent on me. Yeah, me too. I'm like, yeah. why am I, why am I your crutch right now? Um, and of course it's, you know, obviously anybody who's, who's been practicing for a while or even for a little bit understands that it's more complicated than that. Um, and there are those people who, who just, who need that support and eventually they kind of, a spark happens and, and things shift. But for the most part, with most things, I, you know, I want to get you better faster. That means that I'm doing my job. It means that you're doing your job because it's not just me. I'm not like waving my wand over you and you're better, right? <laughs> you have to be part of this equation as well or else we're not going to get anywhere. I find myself reminding patients of this all the time because they'll come in and they'll say things like, oh, it's great. You got rid of my knee pain. And, and I'll just look at them and go, no, I didn't. You did. I got to help. You and your body and your spirit, whatever this thing is that we're walking around in, that's what did it. It had a little help. It had a little guidance. But let's not equate guidance with the actual result. Absolutely. I think that's really important. And I think people need to be reminded of this all the time because so often in our modern world, I think we're given the idea that our health is in somebody else's hands and we're going to get better because of what a doctor did. You know, I'm down here in, in St. Louis, so it's, it's not quite as cosmopolitan as Chicago or Seattle or, you know, bigger places. So I have people come in and say things like, well, you know, my doctor has me on these medications and they make me healthier. <laughs> yeah. Which of course- That happens is... here too. <laughs> okay, so, but I mean, people come with this idea and, and we can feed into that and maybe, you know, have that quote, patient for life. They're coming in for their tune-ups from now until I retire. I, I, I don't think I'd be quite satisfied in that sort of a practice myself. One of the problems is that treatment planning really at its finest is not taught in school. And so we understand it and the way we experience it, at least I can speak from my clinical experience in school and from what I've 
I mean, I ask these questions with pretty much everybody I interview, which is a lot of folks, is, you know, what their experience is like treatment planning. And I've yet to really hear it done well in school. So what we see, and I remember this clearly in my clinic experience, is we'd see these people who come in and then the next intern comes in and they just come in to see them weekly. And then the next intern comes in and you, they'd have these charts that are just like textbooks, you know? You know, and I walk in, I'm like, what, what are you guys even doing here? You know, and I remember really trying to to push myself out of that place. And it's so easy. It's, it's comfortable, right? It's much easier to not challenge yourself to, to think outside of what they've been doing. Sure. I'll just do whatever protocol they did last time. And they seemed happy. And, you know, that's all that matters as opposed to like, is there, is their health moving? Right. Um, but I think because of that, we, we are taught to just continue to do that. You see patients for life. And I do think it, I think patients should be our patients for life, but that doesn't mean we need to see them weekly for life, right? <laughs> I feel like that's not how the body works. We can't be dependent on something like that. I, um, I hope not. I, and I don't, I mean, I get it. Let's say someone has diabetes and they really want to manage it with something besides Western pharmaceuticals. Okay, there's some work that we're going to have to do on a regular basis. But at a certain point, I don't think we're seeing them weekly. Maybe we're seeing them monthly. Maybe we see them every two months. All right. And then like you were saying, there's that, and I love this because I've been practicing long enough to see this as well, that you have patients, you see them a handful of times, and then you wonder, God, I wonder if I helped them at all because they're gone. You know, they just, they, they just kind of blend into the background. They just go away after a moment, right? And they don't let you know I'm good. They just go away because they're good. And then they come back a few years later and you find out, wow, it, the treatment had a big impact. And now they're here for this total other thing. Right. And I really, I try to teach my team and I uh, clearly that this is a reflection of where I was at in my practice, you know, um, that, you know, I wasn't following up with him to see what's going on. Right. That's, that's not how I roll now. Right. Nobody just falls off my schedule. We have it built into our uh, EMR to be able to track people. Not because it's like, you need to get in to see me this many times. It's because I set a treatment plan based on my experience, based on the research, based on their reactivity to the treatments. And if they're not following through on that, we likely are not helping them the way they need to be helped, right? So we need to figure out what that is. But that didn't exist back then. <laughs> and so that was clearly a reflection of me, you know, just... Um, dropping the ball, um, which is good, right? We have to learn from our mistakes. And, you know, thankfully they weren't like, oh, I'm not coming back in again because she's horrible and she made me feel uncomfortable or whatever it hurt or something like that, right? Are you doing the follow-up yourself or, do, or is someone else doing that follow-up? Yeah, we have a whole system. So we have our clinic managers who are essentially front desk folks um, with a lot more responsibilities. I mean, don't get me wrong. They, they are lifesavers for sure. They play their part and then we play our part as well. So there's a whole system that we do um, with a new patient who comes in. We always follow up right away, right? That's like, they're collecting data for me. Why wouldn't I want to get it, right? That's going to refine my treatment right away if I know how they're reacting. Um, so I ask them to do that. But if somebody falls off the schedule, that's where we kind of tag team with our clinic manager because maybe they spoke to the clinic manager and they canceled. Okay, that's good to know. Then maybe they should reach out first. Or they maybe they sent me an email or they said they were going to go out of town. I put that in my notes. All right, well, then I should probably follow up. It has to be logical. It has to feel it has to feel comfortable. Um, I mean, there's a little discomfort, right? Again, there's always going to be a little bit of discomfort, but you don't want to feel pressure-y or you want to feel salesy, right? And it's not. It's not salesy. You think that this is the best treatment plan for this patient in order to get better. It's not like, ooh, I need to sell 10 more packages or I'm not going to be able to make this hurdle. 
like, that's not it. You know, it shouldn't be. And I think that uh, I learned quickly, even in my own private practice where I covered everything, is if you put dollar signs on the top of your patient's head, you're probably not going to be successful, right? You have to treat these people like like human beings. Um, but you also have to remember that you have a, you're in a position of power here and they're coming to you, putting their health in your hands. And you have to respect that by not taking advantage of them, but by also not selling them short, right? And I think that's what happens is too many people are selling themselves short. Well, just see how you feel. No, that's not how the body works, man. <laughs> if that's how the body worked, we would not exist as a species. I don't believe it, right? <laughs> you don't just, oh, we'll just see how things go. No, it is. we're purely systematic and so sophisticated in our systematicness. I don't know if that's a word, but we're going to go with it. But you know, so sophisticated in that, like there has to be a system in place and we have to be able to, you know, put in inputs and then receive output and then move forward with that. So you can't just see how you feel. I mean, of course, we're going to see how they feel, right? But like there needs to be, okay, well, when you feel this way, how do we then react to that, right? Just, and I think this is where studying herbs, I think it was probably um, so helpful in my thought process and critical thinking aspect is because when you give somebody the wrong herbs and they have this X reaction, then we know, okay, it's because there was too much of this or there's too little of that, or clearly it was a wrong formula or whatever, right? right? In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, there's a couple things I want to comment on with this. The first one is about, oh, well, let's see how you feel. Patients are incredibly poor at being able to answer that question if it's asked that way. Oh, how are you feeling? They're just going to tune into what they're feeling now. Oh, well, you know, I, I still have this pain in my ankle. Well, the pain used to go all the way into your knee and up to your buttock and into your lower back. But they're, now there's, well, you know, my ankle hurts. And they completely have forgotten that the rest of it is better. Right. So Yeah, we're cheerleaders in that way, right? So, well, investigators, I think. Yeah, More well, for, certainly investigators, but cheerleading them past like, you know, no, but you remember how that was the case? Yeah, see We're how that's helping how you're feeling better. Yeah. Because they'll get amnesia. It's very difficult to pay attention to something that's not present. Yeah. So, well, I mean, our bodies are wired that way. Why should we worry about it? Is that funny that our bodies are actually wired for us to let go, but we don't let ourselves let go? 
right? We are the ones who force ourselves to hold on to these things. Like it's my identity that my ankle hurts. Well, some, sometimes it is. I mean, sometimes the ankle hurts, everything else has gotten better. But I, I just, I think it takes some nuanced inquiry to dig into how do you feel and, and why it's so helpful to have follow-up, especially if people are not coming back, like you were saying. And, and there's this other piece that you brought up, and I think this is so important about our intention in following up. Are we following up to be salesy? Are we following up because we have a hole in our schedule? Or are we following up because we're genuinely concerned? I, I think these things make a big, big difference. And I know that there is a whole camp out there of follow up your patients and make sure they come back in. The idea of follow up is to put that price tag on their head. Right. I think the inherent sort of background understanding or is that people think that you know, you can't be successful in this medicine um, by doing it the right way. So you have to do these things. Or if somebody is successful, people are like, oh, well, again, this is where we kind of talk too much trash amongst ourselves. Well, if they are successful, then they're probably doing things illegally, right? Well, no. I think if you're actually taking care of your patients the way you should, you have a natural referral source, mm -hmm. um, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And you will always have a full book. I just, I don't, I don't believe it to be any other way. Unfortunately, people, because they don't believe that, because that sort of basic tenant isn't necessarily believed by a lot of people, what ends up happening is that they do shady things, right? They do things like sell packages, even though they don't need them necessarily necessarily. Or yeah, they'll use the package, but in like a year, well, why do they need to pay for it now? It, that doesn't make any sense, you know, because it's investing in their, in their future. I mean, yeah, but they could invest their future in other ways and then still pay me when they come back next time they see me. Right. I don't fully believe that. If you don't believe that we can do it the right way, then we do silly things like overbill with insurance, you know, put too many codes in or that kind of thing, or tell people to keep coming in because that's when they want to come in as opposed to that's when they should be coming in. Right. right. So yeah, it's a tough one. It seems to me a lot of acupuncturists don't really believe in acupuncture. You know, we were just talking about doing it, quote, the right way, which is help people with the amazing things that we can do, let them go when they're ready to graduate, welcome them back when they're requiring our services again. Um, and this idea that we have to somehow make things churn to bring people in, in some ways to me that bespeaks that we don't really trust our medicine. I think that's totally fair. It's funny, uh, this weekend, uh, I was doing like a, an event with this running group that we work with. So we did just like really simple auricular kind of stuff just to kind of give them a taste of the medicine. Right. And this woman was telling me, she's like, you know, I have really stuffy, really bad sinuses kind of all the time, but they're pretty rough right now. I'm like, ah, oh, it is the season. Uh, and I was like, look, I'll do a couple points in your ear. And then if that doesn't kind of get rid of it, I'm happy to, you know, you signed a waiver, so I can, I can put needles in your face. I'm happy to do a little more of kind of the style I tend to use, right? I kind of go around the circle, put needles in everybody. I come back to her. I'm like, how are you feeling? She's like, it's draining like crazy. I, you know, literally just did external ear. I was driving home and I call my wife and I'm like, you know, babe, like 
sometimes I don't believe that auricular works. And then I just need these experiences to remind me that it totally works. Right. And then I start questioning, well, why do I not believe it works? Because I'm not confident in my abilities because I haven't studied it a ton. And I think that's what happens is that people who, uh, you know, they kind of just do the bare minimum to get out and get licensed. And then they're not constantly being in an environment where they have to challenge themselves to grow. They're not growing. And if they're not confident in their abilities, they blame it on the medicine, right? It's easier to do that. Um, this medicine is stupid smart, right? It's stupid. Like, I mean, how is it that like interns at school who barely have a taste of it are getting incredible results? Medicine is intelligent, right? We get in the way, I think. Um, our egos get in the way. Our drama gets in the way, right? Well, and, and you bring up a word that I, I think about a lot, which is confidence. Right? People talk about, well, you know, my schooling must have sucked because I don't have, con- I got out and I don't have confidence. And I think to myself, why would anybody have confidence when they got out of school? If you haven't actually made a practice work on your own without supervision, if you haven't run into problems that you don't know how to solve, and so you've gone deeper in a study or you've taken some classes, or like you were talking about with auricular, I don't use auricular much, you say. Um, so you use it, and it's like, holy smokes, that, that really works. Hmm, maybe I should look deeper into it. I'd love to get your thoughts about confidence and how people can like naturally acquire that. I'm not talking about bravado and I'm not talking about, you know, talking ourselves up in a way that we don't believe, but genuine confidence. Where does that come from? People always say that I'm confident and I think that they misconstrue that with cockiness. Uh, and I think they're two very different things, right? One's a false young, right? One's a false young. That's false right. Yang, yes. For sure. Yes. Um, and one is, is actually a nice integration of yin and yang, I think. And so what that means to me is that uh, you're in the right place doing the right things and you're holding yourself accountable and you're within a community that holds you accountable, right? So how did I gain my confidence in this medicine? Well, I had all of this experience previously, the people piece, the um, hard science piece, right? My background is in um, quantum mechanics and I went to medical school for a few years. So I have that background, but I knew nothing about Chinese medicine, except that I had one treatment by this guy that I didn't really like that had in a really uncomfortable environment and I got better and better than anything else I had I'd used at that point, right? That's so placebo crazy. effect was That's out. wild. I mean, it was perfect for the scientist in me, right? Because yeah. I'm just a, such a nerd heart scientist and placebo effect was fully out, but I got better. And something kept leading me to this place and I chose not to fight it and just go and uh, change my life, right? So the confidence, yeah, you, you, do, you do the work ahead of time and you, you're moving towards your destiny, but then you put in the time, right? And you put in that passion and you put in that intention and you put in that integrity. I think that's where confidence comes from, right? When you know that, yeah, I could have studied harder for that test, but I didn't, right? <laughs> okay, so let's be real, right? You didn't, you didn't put it in, so you might not be as confident with that, right? And then you learn from that and say, okay, next time I will bust my butt a little more and study more, right? So I think putting in the time, but then having mentors that, that you know, again, support you and, and being in the right place. Like, you're not going to be confident in what you do if, if you feel like you have imposter syndrome, if you feel like, what am I doing? Calling myself a doctor, wearing this white coat, you know, what do I know about pulses? I only studied them for a couple of weeks. Well, 
did you only study them for a couple of weeks? So I always tell my, I hire folks straight out of school, not too infrequently actually. And I'm lucky I get to teach some incredible folks and, and see how they grow. And you see um, if you kind of put in the right elements early on, you build that confidence early on, you come out in a much different place than if you kind of figure it out in your last year, right? Or in your first five years of practice. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I always tell folks. I'm like, look, I want you to learn from the mistakes I made my first five years of practice so that you don't have to make them, right? Let's just jump through those. Let's just, you know, you don't need to, I, I took one for the team here, right? That's important not to get caught up in that and, and not to get beat down by these silly things. Confidence, it's so complicated, but I think it really comes down to trusting yourself and not feeling, like I said, like you're an imposter. And that comes from putting in the time and putting in the dedication and being okay with being wrong. That false yang is like, I got this. No, no. Well, yeah, if it didn't, if you didn't get better, it was probably because of X, Y, and Z. Like, no, maybe. Maybe, maybe there's something that I did that wasn't right. right. <laughs> it's okay. Maybe I just don't know how to treat this yet. It's not that the medicine can't do it. It's that I don't know how to do it yet. Right. And that's the, that's the other thing too. Confidence, like before I was fully confident in my skill sets, I was fully confident in this medicine. Ah, right. And so ah, I knew mm -hmm. that like, well, I might mess it up. But luckily, I'm working within a system that I can always go back to the eight principles, right? We can always talk about it that way. I love the idea of people specializing if that's what they're passionate about. But I also believe that you don't have to specialize because we have such a simple way of getting to the basic diagnostics, right? Now, of course, um, understanding the physiology, there's so many different ways of approaching that. And uh, I'm, I'm a big proponent of studying all the different kind of systems and you don't have to be completely wedded to one. You know, I love the system of Shang Han Lun and, um, and that kind of diagnostic uh, world that like are no... I can't say his last name, and Steve um, Bonzak, they teach here in Chicago. Um, I love that physiology, but I'm not a Shanghan Looney. That's not all my life is, right? That's just one other piece of the puzzle. You have to experience things to know what works and what doesn't, right? And sometimes experience is through seeing patients, and sometimes experience is just putting your nose in a book and not watching TV for a little while, <laughs> you know, dedicating yourself, right? Um, it's funny. I, I don't read like nonfiction books. I read Chinese medical texts and research articles and um, leadership stuff. I do a lot of leadership stuff now because of my team, right? I need to make sure that I'm doing the best I can by them, not only as a clinician, but also um, as a leader. But you yeah, are just... a serious geek. Yeah. Do you watch Netflix? I do watch Netflix, of right. course. Okay, so so so, what's your favorite thing on Netflix right now? Um, well, I'm super psyched that The Crown is back. Ah, my niece loves it. Yeah, we just finished watching the new season. I haven't started it yet because I feel like I need to be in the right headspace for it. I love those first two seasons. They, I mean, Claire Foy was just everything. Good. So you you do have some yin time that you spend to counterbalance all this activity that you have. Well, I don't have a choice. I have a little, I have a little man here, my little ten and a half year old son, Rumi, um, who forces me out of my head. <laughs> you have to be in your body. Uh, you don't get a choice, actually, with kids, which is just so, so beautiful. Yeah, unbelievably lucky. Um, and then basketball. I play basketball too, which feels very yin. It's confusing, but <laughs> yeah, you sound pretty badass with that basketball too. Hey, I got a, a question. I did not know that you had a background in quantum mechanics. You mentioned earlier in our conversation about being a math geek, but a background in quantum mechanics. Could we just like jump into this for a couple of minutes? Sure. 
I'll give you my quick history. So I went to pretty serious science and math school where you're almost shunned if you're artistic, right? <laughs> so it worked out fine because that's how my mind works. Um, you know, I come from a long line of um, female physicians, actually. So, you know, science and, and medicine was always sort of an ex- expectation. And, and I was thankful to be to be good at it and and excited about it too, right? It fit with my passion and my skill set. So pretty high level math by the time I walked out of out of high school. And then when I went into undergraduate, I kind of took it to the next level. I kind of went in actually studying neuroscience and I was very dissuaded by the fact that there's so much we didn't understand about the brain. You know, I had this idea that like everything was clear and mapped out and I don't know who gave me that dumbass idea, but <laughs> it's definitely not the case. Well, there's something very inviting about there's something to know. And if I do the right things and I'll learn it and I'll know it and I'll be competent and, you know, it, it makes life easier. Right. And coming from hard science too, it's like, it is more systematic in that way. Right. Yeah. And I was always very turned off by biological sciences, interestingly, even though I love people, because it felt very sort of memorizing and less sort of critical thinking right? Um, so less of that, um, you understand the concepts and then you can kind of extrapolate from that in more of protocol-like Right. And I have that still have that very same aversion to how people practice now. Right. Um, like that's cool. Protocols are great. But what, what's the reasoning behind it and how do we adjust it if necessary? Yeah, so, um, so you bring that critical thinking piece in. Non-negotiable. Right. And I think, you know, because we have a large company, people always assume, which are so many assumptions that I'm happy to kind of talk through. It's OK. There are haters everywhere. That's fine. Um, but let's just talk through it. And if you still want to hate, that's your call, right? That's your karma. That's your life. But um, people assume that we do protocols. And that's just silly. I want I hire critical thinkers. And I help do whatever I can to help nurture that critical thinking. So anyways, and that's because of my background in physical sciences. So I went to college and wanted to do neuroscience and was turned off pretty quickly and kind of just went to my comfort zone, which was, I was going, I was pre-med. So I had to take physics, chemistry, biology, organic chemistry. And I kind of jumped into my physics world and I found that I fell in love with chemistry. I didn't know anything about it. We had pretty garbage chemistry program in my high school, at least when I was there. And so uh, I fell in love with that. I did, I worked my butt off. I was motivated to work my butt off, which is I think another piece of that. And I was surprised. I didn't know anything about it, right. truthfully. Chemistry. <laughs> so that, How cool. Who knew? <laughs> it's funny. My dad's an engineer and he hated chemistry. So he was pretty upset about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the first time I disappointed him though, right? <laughs> but I'm sure it wasn't the last. So I kind of got into physical chemistry. Um, and so my the kind of next step was quantum mechanics. And what was really cool about quantum mechanics was it, it was the first time that I was comfortable with this unknown. My frustration with like I said, with neuroscience is that I, you know, I just, what do you mean? We don't understand how this happens and we don't fully appreciate the neural networks, right? And of course, the biggest problem with um, neuroscience, which is now, of course, being rectified is that we would just take it to the micro and not look at the macro, right? And now, truthfully, the way things are moving is people are understanding that you have to look at how they interact with each other, not just as individual systems, right? Hey, that sounds like Chinese medicine. Exactly. Shocking. They all come back, right? It's like, why do I have a degree in chemistry and physics? And why do I have a degree in quantum mechanics? Um, chemistry is really helping with my herbs, let me tell you, um, especially as we're kind of formulating our own um, pharmacy. And the quantum mechanics really makes me appreciate sort of looking at the micro and the macro at the same time, understanding that there's always going to be peace we don't fully understand and it's okay. To me, it felt like the closest to sort of spirituality that I'd ever encountered in science. 
whatever spirituality means to you, uh, we can't separate it from our medicine, certainly, right? Um, you can call yourself whatever you want, but it doesn't matter to me. Uh, the reality is there's something that there's the Tao, right? <laughs> like, what is the Tao? It resonated with me in a way that um, that I never fully appreciated. And it's so, not so surprising that I was really frustrated by studying Western medicine. This very like A plus B always equals C. Well, actually in quantum mechanics, it doesn't um, necessarily, which is so cool. So you're more comfortable with the unknown. Absolutely. You used mm -hmm. to not like it so much. Yeah, no, order, control, right? I thought I was getting really good at kind of letting go of control. And then I had a kid. And that really <laughs> reminded me, <laughs> you just don't get to control anything, right? And I had a kid. I mean, I mean, I think our practice is our, is our first child, right? That was the first child that my wife and I had. We had our practice before we were engaged and everybody jumps through hoops around me. I feel bad, but it's for their betterment, I promise. Um, but, you know, I was like, if we can ha hack it for six months running our own practice together and living and successfully, you know, existing, then I think we can do it in a much larger scale. So I kind of, of course, she didn't know this, but I kind of said that like, all right, let's see if we can make it. And we can. Awesome. And then very quickly a ring, you know, popped out and and we move forward. I do call our practice like our first child. Um, and I think my second child is my practice at Align Modern Health. And, you know, the developmental stages are very similar. <laughs> Interesting. You know. So originally with this conversation, I wanted to start with this work that you're doing at Align. But we, you know, we kind of got off on this other tangent. I think I asked you something about abundance and, you know, wow, now it's an hour later. But you work in a large practice, you know, a lot of us just work in, you know, single practices or small practices, but you're working in this large multidisciplinary practice. I've just got so many questions about it, but we're, but we're coming up to the end of our time. So I'm going to try to condense this just a little bit. And we have to have a part two. <laughs> you know, I'm totally, I'm totally up for part two because, because one of the things that's a real passion for me is helping people to find what's the right place for them and what's the right kind of practice for them. For some of us, like for me, working by myself in a small practice that I get to do everything I want to do in is really good at this moment in my life. You're working in this huge interdisciplinary practice. I, I would love to sit down and have a part two with you about like finding our right place in practice. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, I would love to. I think that one thing that you mentioned um, was uh, this idea that at this point, this is what works. And I think that's super important, right? Um, we all go through so many transitions. There's not one person I've met in Chinese medical world who hasn't lived a few lives. So I think that there is the right place at the right time. I always tell people, I love what we're doing, but it's definitely not for everybody. You know, if you want to run your own practice and you want to have a yoga studio and you want to sell all this product that you make and all this, and you want to see one patient an hour, like, do it, man, because that means that you're moving our medicine forward in a way that you're passionate about, so it's not going to feel like work. I listened to the podcast you did with Sharon Weisenbaum, who I just adore everything that comes out of her mouth. Um, she's just such a wise woman and a young soul, but a wise woman. Um, and I love that she said that. It's like fun. It's play to me. I'm laughing half of the time with my patients, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I um, find that too. I used to feel a little guilty about it, that, that there would be, so, that. Much, there'd be so much laughter. It's true. But that's, but that's part of it when it's appropriate. 
Right. Absolutely. And it's part of how I heal people or help people heal themselves. Right. Too. I agree. But yeah, you know, I, I have people who have worked in private practice for years and decided this is not what they want to do anymore. It doesn't mean what they were doing before is wrong. It made sense at the time. I loved our private practice. I found it so Zen to do laundry all the time and take phone calls. I thought it was the best. It's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to feel like I my hands were dirty. And then when this opportunity came along, I realized that there was an opportunity to really grow um, this medicine in a way I could never have done it on my own. And I had a call to leadership that I could not uh, say no to. And I certainly doubted myself. I remember sitting on the couch with Kate and saying like, what? the hell are they thinking asking me? I was a year out of school and they asked me to start this program. I was like, man, I can give them 10 names of people who'd be better. And she looked at me and this is where, again, we come back to this idea of community. And she said, but they chose you. Where it's like when you don't trust yourself, you need somebody else to trust you. Yeah. And sometimes someone else's trust, they're seeing something in us that we're not quite seeing in ourselves yet. Totally. And so good to have opportunities to grow into. So wonderful. We will come back for a part two. Awesome. I'd love to. Thank you so much for this I'm going to keep this cool headphone, too. I'm cool really headset. feeling it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks awesome. so much. Thanks, Michael. I hope that you found this conversation to be helpful as you're retooling your practice for the current shape of our world. You know, we are in the business of helping people change and live a fuller, more embodied life. And right now, we're facing the challenges of how to do that when we don't have access to our usual toolbox. It's not a bad opportunity. In fact, it's a moment to take a look at what is the essence of the work that you do and allow that sense of essence, that deep aspect of your jing, to help give you some guidance on your next steps. And remember, if you'd like some help with getting your tech together, I'm available to help. Please reach out to me on the website. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.